Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon. In today's episode, we have Christopher Hussein, founder and CEO of RealKey, a digital mortgage platform that will make mortgage processing easier, less time intensive for everyone involved. RealKey was recently accepted into the prestigious Flagstar Bank Mortgage Tech Accelerator Program. It was also winner of the 2020 Mass Challenge $100,000 Diamond Award Prize. Christopher, who previously founded a company called Cindio, a San Francisco-based startup that raised $50 million. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Christopher Hussein, founder and CEO of RealKey. Christopher, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Yeah, appreciate you taking the time and a lot to discuss with with your journey and with RealKey. For people who aren't familiar, what is RealKey? What are you trying to do with this company, Christopher? Yeah, so RealKey is actually a mortgage technology company that's re-envisioning the lending process through automation. Uh, what we actually do is we are automating documentation collection, review, and the communication amongst all the parties. So essentially, after a lender and a consumer agree to work together, we have the lender export the loan application data to us. Uh, the lenders are paying users and the brokers. And our system automatically figures out what documents are needed, who they're needed from. We invite them in. We also invite in who needs access to those documents. That way they can chat and communicate in the same space. And then we facilitate getting all the right items the first time through on-screen instruction, <laughs> through analyzing those data and document uh, you know, points and trying to see if they trigger any additional new items so that you don't have to wait for processing or underwriting. Uh, and then we stack it all and make it a easy, nice to read package with cover letters and everything so that underwriting looks at it. Uh, there's less of that frustrating back and forth and that wasn't right, I didn't get the right item. Um, really trying to make it just a more enjoyable process for everybody involved. And with this, Christopher, I'm always kind of curious about founder market fit and how people decide to get in certain industries. For you, how did you decide to get into this industry in the first place, taking a giant step back here? <laughs> uh, man, uh, yeah, I, I, it's it makes sense. We're a mortgage tech company, so my background is in mortgage. Um, arguably one of the most su- successful people in mortgage. Um, I was a top mortgage originator in the U.S. for two straight years. Um, I also uh, co-founded an online mortgage brokerage called Cindio. Uh, raised about $50 million and is now part of Freedom Financial. Uh, and I, I've i lived and breathed this. I also owned a 100-person office of mine that was a franchise brokerage where I served as national sales director. I'm one of only a handful of people to hold a license in all 50 states. Um, so uniquely uh, uniquely in the right place at the right time <laughs> and, and know, know the pain points better than everybody. Did you always think that you'd be a founder? Obviously, you've started multiple companies now. I'm just curious as going, you know, taking a step back again. Like, did you always figure you would be a founder? I did typically levitate or gravitate towards uh, being more of an entrepreneur. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I actually went with my mom, who was working for Disney at the time, uh, to a Christmas event back in the 80s. And Michael Eisner was coming around saying hi to everybody. And when I was done with that, I was like, oh, I want Michael Eisner's job. I, I remember <laughs> it, it was always, I wanted to be the CEO. I wanted to be the executive. I wanted to be the leader. It, it's knowing that you can make an impact and you know, 
help make everybody's lives more enjoyable. I, the CEO is uniquely positioned to be able to have a vision and drive that vision. So I, I think I've just always been very vision based and that's led me to being a CEO, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's so many routes and paths that people can take into becoming a founder and leading a company. And sometimes it's by accident. Sometimes it's it's way more intentional. And I want to get back into RealKey in a second, but you mentioned Cindio and having raised $50 million for that company. Tell me how Cindio got started. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I was doing more consulting uh, before Cindio got started. And uh, I always got calls consistently because I was the top originator where people would say, hey, come and work for us. We want you to originate. We want you to help manage our people. Now, we've seen all the success you've had. And you're like, yeah, yeah, thank you. I don't want that. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, I got a call from my co-founders, uh, Nick and Ori, and they said, hey, uh, you know, we've got a couple buddies of ours in Switzerland. They started one of the first brokerages in, uh, in Switzerland, and they want to do something related to mortgage in the U.S. So they've given us $1.5 million to start a company. I'm like, so you don't want me to originate for you? Like, no, we want you to help us run this. We've never done mortgage and we hear <laughs> you're the man. Uh, we're talking to a bunch of people and uh, obviously they talked to all the top originators, all the people on their list and came down and said, look, you're the only one that seemed to hit all the check marks. You understand technology. You understand the ecosystem. You've definitely had success. You've got some clout. And then basically I said, this sounds really shady. <laughs> I, I, i've never heard of it like, wait a minute. hey hey we've got 1.5 million dollars for our buddies in switzerland I'm like that doesn't sound shady at all yeah, right I'm like all right i, I gotta kind of kick the tires can you make an intro all right this still seems shady you know fly me out there i guess and let me meet and, and shake their hands and you know kick the tires and told my wife hey i'll be right back i'm going on a consulting trip i ended up staying there for a few weeks consulting with them and uh, yeah, uh, ended up coming back and told my wife, so we were living in Napa at the time, I'm going to do this new startup. It's called Money Park, which made it even shadier because it wasn't called Cindy originally. Uh, we're going to move to San Francisco. Does that sound cool? She's like, I would love to move to San Francisco. So within 30 <laughs> days, found a new place, paid way too much in rent. And uh, first thing I did was tell uh, Nick and Ori, yeah, Money Park is a horrible name. <laughs> in, the, in the financial industries, and especially we're going to be dealing with consumers, that sounds so shady. We got to yeah. change that name. <laughs> <laughs> not, the, not the best necessarily. And so when you came in there, though, understanding you were going to build this company, what were some of the first things you guys did? Because obviously you sold it pretty relatively quickly. I mean, what were some of the first things you did to get this off the ground? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I basically came in, uh, came up with the concept for using technology to improve on the efficiency, uh, and also having a really white glove treatment. Uh, I gave them direct access to my preferred lenders that I work with, uh, a lot of the relationships I had built over time to give them a very quick competitive advantage. Unfortunately, um, I had to exit the company uh, much earlier than expected. Uh, I was only with them for about a year, year and a half. And unfortunately, my dad had ALS. He was outdoors in 110 plus degree weather. Uh, my mom did not have her hearing aid on, so she didn't hear that he had fallen. And basically, uh, he ended up getting such a uh, severe burn on his legs that he had to have them amputated. Oh my gosh. And my mom had cancer on top of that. 
Uh, and I'm like, hey, guys, I really need to spend some time with my family and get them stabilized. I'm going to take some time off. Uh, I realize you guys are in fundraising mode right now, and it's very distracting when the guy with the mortgage experience, who's usually who the investors want to talk to, uh, who's on the deck is not there. So if you guys can remove me from the deck, um, I think that's probably a good idea. So that was a difficult decision overall, but I'm glad I did it because unfortunately my dad has passed since then, and that time was invaluable. Um, and that's really honestly where Realty kind of started is during that time, obviously I'm at their place taking care of them consistently and came up with the concept for real key. And I'm like, all right, uh, you know, parents are getting a little more stabilized. You know, it took quite a few months uh, to get there. And I'm like, does this belong with Cindio? Or, you know, no, I don't think it does. I think that a product like this uh, is going to have more impact on more people and the industry as a whole if it's a standalone product. And that's actually one of our principles is to remain uh, neutral. Yeah. Not to be, you know, very specifically attached to any particular bank or brokerage. Um, in fact, we've had a lot of, uh, you know, opportunities to take investments from some banks that have been interested. But we've said, look, you know, that is going to essentially decide our fate, where it's going to be a little more difficult to have other banks and brokers provide all their customer data and information to us uh, if we are too heavily aligned with any one particular company. Christopher, tell me more about that decision to remain neutral with RealKey. Why did you decide on that? Because it, it, exactly as I just said, it, it's a matter of if I, it, let's use Quicken Loans as a good example. They're a very sure. well-known product uh, for anyone who's in the industry, out of the industry, rocket mortgage, you know, click here, get mortgage. Um, and... Imagine if they went through and they provided that to every bank and brokerage in the U.S. and said, look, we've created this great technology. We want to make it available to you guys. Anybody bank and like, okay, what? You want me to put my customer's data into your system <laughs> and you totally compete with me? Yeah. No, and it, that It's just it doesn't sound good when you say it, and therefore you're probably not going to do it. And so that's something where we just are very practical and logical about that and said, I that doesn't sound good, so let's not do that. With RealKey in the early days, understanding that you, you knew you wanted to remain neutral with this and made a lot of sense from uh, that perspective, as you just mentioned, who is the team behind this when you started this in the early days to get this off the ground? Uh, initially, it was me for the first year or so. Uh, we did not take any venture capital. I did have some contractors that I worked with and used them to go through and essentially take the concept and the idea and my horrible, I had to use PowerPoint to initially design the product <laughs> and definitely not the right tool. I had them go through, redesign it, you know, reconceptualize it, turn it into, you know, a clickable demonstration that uh, we could then take to investors and have them to invest in also that we could do our research around. Um, at that point, then we brought in, uh, I did bring in uh, a CTO uh, we've since unfortunately partnered, parted with that CTO, just wasn't quite the right fit, um, and raised some capital and the rest is kind of history. On that note of, of capital raising, you mentioned they obviously raised a, a lot of money at Cindio, but then with, with RealKey, what was your experience around raising capital for this company? Yeah. So with Cindio, I wasn't the one raising the capital. I was the COO there. Uh, right. 
Nick was the CEO. He did most of the fundraising. He had a lot of the connections. Uh, I know he had done an exit previously uh, with uh, Telefio. It was like a $441 million exit, so quite large. Um, so he was definitely the right person for the job there. So this is my first time going through and raising capital. Uh, definitely a lot more time consuming than I had originally expected. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of stuff to be learned from this and advice to give to anybody trying to start a startup. A, don't do it. <laughs> uh, B, make sure definitely I've put in, I put in a lot of my own capital initially. So you should always have, uh, a decent savings so that you can go through and essentially run the company until that capital comes in. Uh, also, definitely a lot of value in the university that you went to. If there's an angel network there, um, unfortunately, the university that I went to is, uh, you know, proud as I am of being part of UC Davis, there is no angel alumni network, kind of like a Harvard or a MIT or Stanford or UC Berkeley or yeah. Chicago Booth or any of those guys. If you've got those, it gives you a serious advantage uh, right off the bat. And so, um, I think it was very valuable. We entered a incubator called the Battery, and they were great for us. Uh, a lot of them were Sandhill Angels guys. Uh, ended up getting our first investment from our champion there, and much of the additional investments we got came from the other investor advisors. They then made the intro to Band of Angels, uh, who did invest as well. That then made the intro to the Angel Syndication Network, then to Lubbock Angels, Pasadena Angels. Uh, you know, we, I could go off uh, on the <laughs> list of angel groups. Uh, and eventually that got us to our initial launch. And once we got to our initial launch, uh, we ran out of money. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be completely transparent on that. We ran out of money at that point on our initial launch. And it was right in the middle of the holidays. That is the worst time in the world raise capital is the holidays and the summer uh investors like to take time off yep <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I've, I've talked to a number of vcs and like, i was just talking to one last week actually he was like yeah normally people in december shut down uh you know it gets like august or july depending on the month yeah it's like shut down they're not doing much oh yeah we're in the middle of a pandemic and i'm definitely heard a few times where investors are going to cancun and overseas yeah. and i'm like oh Jeez, that's <laughs> <laughs> who is left to invest. Yeah, and and with that too, like one thing I'm curious about with the incubator you mentioned, how did you choose that incubator, that particular one? Uh, that incubator that I actually had met one of the managing partners there at an event, and he had a mortgage background, and asked me to come out and meet with him and his other partner. Uh, they had just done their very first cohort. Uh, again, it's called Batchery, so it was Batch 1. And yep. It's like, hey, we really want you to be part of Batch 2. Um, what can we do to get you involved? And what I really liked about them that was different from your typical incubators and accelerators is that they didn't say, hey, we're going to force some money upon you at a horrible valuation. Right. Uh, and really kind of shoot you in the foot with that um, by starting your cap table off on the right, wrong foot. And that was what I really liked about it was that it was my own pace. They would invest at the terms that my other investors were investing at. And that as far as what we needed, they had 
all the access and resources to resources that we could possibly need. And it was take it as you need it. It's really driven by us. Um, it was less of the cracking the whip and we need this by this day, which can be quite distracting uh, to early stage startups that have small teams and they've got to do specifically what these this incubator and accelerator wants them to do. And it's not necessarily what's right for the company. So I, I really, really enjoyed working with them. Um, in fact, they actually have me uh, almost like a committee member in some spaces <laughs> where we do talk to a lot of the uh, companies that they're considering or that are considering joining them um, and provide them some of our feedback and our experience. That's awesome. And and one of the things you mentioned as well, I mean, going back to running out of money, which is something that can kill a lot of startups, what did you do then? How did you overcome that? Yeah, so that was lessons learned from uh, my past startup. Uh, the past startup definitely burned through money faster than I would be comfortable with. Uh, and I always saw it as a risk and learned from that. Uh, they, I, Though we did have an exit, um, that company ended up shutting down right before that exit because they ran out of capital, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, they uh, would wait till last second to raise money. And then also to gain as much traction as possible, which is what everybody tells you to do. But unfortunately, in the last round that they had, they gave exclusive rights to a private equity firm that was introduced by a friend of the CEO's. And he basically pulled the rug out from under them at the last second. And what I would have done, and this is what I had suggested afterwards, unfortunately, I wasn't part of that company at that time, uh, was I would have furloughed the executive team. They were, again, very well paid. Uh, and you had more than enough money to pay the rest of the staff and continue operating. Uh, and you could have seen a much bigger exit. So that was actually what we did. When we ran out of capital um, way back when, uh, this was a late 2017 uh, with the original product, uh, we had a conversation with everybody and said, look, we like our team. We love you guys. Um, would you guys be okay if we furloughed you? We'll even help place you at other jobs, but keeping in mind that as soon as we get some capital, uh, we need you back. Yeah. Uh, and we kept the executive team. So that was something that we did very uh, uh, differently. It's been to our advantage is that our executive team lead from the, leads from the trenches. We are all hands-on computer people. Uh, it's not just delegating, do this, do that. You know, I've done a million great things. It's, no, I'm actually still doing great things. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's necessary uh, is that you want people who have great backgrounds, who can help you scale, who are the right people on day one, but can also do the actual work and well wear a million different hats and stay up late nights and on weekends and make all the sacrifices that are necessary to move an early stage startup forward. Um, so I think we've been really lucky. That's been one of our big advantages. So after we ran out of money uh, and furloughed everybody uh, back in 17, uh, and we launched the company, company went gangbusters. We, we had more people than we knew what to do with. <laughs> and, and hey, where's the team and where's everybody? Uh, and the holidays finally subsided. And we got to February and okay, here's investment. And then the National Association of Realtors invest. And everybody's like, oh, all right, they're involved. And this is mortgage technology. They, they know something we don't. Yeah, let's invest. It, it, honestly, we raised all the money that we needed, uh, got everything moving forward. And Lo and behold, we decided to pivot in the <laughs> middle of this. Uh, we brought on uh, the 
TurboTax design lead and Intuit's principal design strategist. Uh, great, great guy that I've been working with, Alan Tifford. Uh, and he comes in and after about a month of research initially before really getting you know uh, hands-on with the rest of the team, uh, said, hey, I want to do a loan application with you, Christopher. Okay, interesting. Let's do this. Uh, he's like, all right, what do you think your name is? And uh, where do you think you work? I'm like, what? Like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> and and I, I, you know, he's like, all right, you see where I'm going with this. All right, so where I'm going with this is that, you know, obviously I know who you are and I know your name, but I can't fund your loan based off of who you think you are. I need a document to prove this. Why do we even ask people, uh, you know, on a loan application, whether how we have them filled out online or we do it over the phone, ask them what they think they, we should have the documents fill everything out because we need the documents anyway. Yeah. Ah, uh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. But we built this other product and it's doing quite well. It's like, I don't think that's the right product. I don't think we should, you know, continue marketing that at all. I don't think we should fix some of the, we had a few bugs in there as well that limited the number of users we could have too. And so he's like, all right, let's go through and, you know, tell you what, we got to go through this process, research this, make sure that if I'm right, we really shouldn't put any more money into old product. We should put everything we have into this product. Uh, and if I'm wrong, tell you what, we continue doing that and I'm happy to be on the team. But I'll tell you what, if you don't go through the process, honestly, I'm out of here. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm that married to a process of doing this the right way, going through the right steps to make sure that we're building the right product. And we've, you know, done the proper research with our users. We've done everything. And so we ended up doing that. Honestly, took uh, almost a full year of going through that. We built out an initial MVP product uh, from that that was actually, it, it's production level that we did. Um, and now we've got our new product coming out in the next few weeks that is based off all this that is completely differentiated from the whole market. It's what we call taking it from an application-centric approach to a document-centric approach. Um, and so I think that's really interesting. It's really, you know, it's where we, it, it, I told you, I wanted to be a vision-based person. And that's what led me to being a CEO is taking a vision and driving that. I think that that's what I really wanted was to change the industry as a whole and have impact on it. And you can't do a truly digital, you know, uh, mortgage or even student loans, all loans, all those things. You can't really do them digitally unless you can automate the entire process. And I think by having the documents fill out the loan application, trigger the additional documents that are needed, then telling a person, and this is where we're going with the future of the company, uh, you know, what they're qualified for and even matching them up with the right lender with the lowest rates and fees. At that point, we're not only automating processing and underwriting, we're automating the loan originators too. I mean, we're automating yeah. the whole entire process. At that point, it can truly be self-service. Um, now, there's a lot of steps to get there. And we have to be mindful that we're in an industry that is stuck in the stone age and has a lot of <laughs> legacy systems. So that's also been part of you know, our approach to this is saying, hey, our first product really has to work seamlessly, not only with the current systems that exist, it should fill in the gaps for them, uh, not try to replace them because uh, at that point you're adding friction. And then it should also work seamlessly within typical operations how loan originators, processors, and underwriters do today's activities. And just over time, we'll get them to that document-centric approach. And we'll be at the center of all of that. 
With that as well, Christopher, taking a step back to what you mentioned with the user research side of things in this you know, last number of, of months and year or so, even to get to this point, what's some of the, the details around that in terms of how you go through that that user research, getting feedback and deciding how to create this the new product you're coming out with? Yeah, so I, I think that we were fortunate. We were, it was called something different. Right now it's called Miro Board. It's a whiteboarding tool. Uh, so I'm getting kind of the tools that we use. And I thought that that was, Definitely one of our secret sauces. I mean, if you look at our mirror board, it's insane. If I zoom in on something, I start zooming out, it literally looks like a galaxy where <laughs> there is so much data on there that everything looks like tiny specks. And then when you zoom in, you're like, oh my God, you guys did all this research. And it's all there. Yeah. And we've organized it in a way that we actually use it for onboarding. You have somebody new coming in and we're like, hey, Go to the Miro board. There's a whole you know, uh, list in order of what we think you should click on, and it takes you to different places in there and shows you how we came to conclusions of uh, what we're building, why we're building it, the research behind it. Uh, you can access videos in there. You can access uh, different links. It, it's a really cool tool. Um, I, I, we could not have done what we did without that. And it's helped us to collaborate, too. I just remember long hours, taking breaks in between to make sure that our minds were refreshed and that we were in that open mode, uh, you know, that we were being open-minded about other possibilities for what's the right thing to build and what are we doing? Are we doing this the right way? Uh, validating all those, you know, being also mindful of the users we spoke to. And obviously they would say certain things are what they want. And uh, I thought it was great the way that we approached uh, interviewing a lot of those people is not just taking them at that word, but really questioning that and making them validated because much of the time they, something would come out of their mouth, you know, is consistently, we want an integration with this. Do you integrate with us? Do you integrate with that? And we're like, do you really want an integration? Is that really what you're looking for? Because at the end of the day, it's really integrating is click, drop down, go. Yeah. If you can click, drop down, export, import into our system, and we avoided all those integrations. Isn't that a better way for us to go? And now we can work with literally every lender in the US on day one. We can also focus all of our efforts and prioritize the other features that you actually want. Uh, E-signing, you know, going through and adding calendar uh, items in here, going through and doing all these other items and further automating uh, what our system already does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you're right. You're right. Uh, <laughs> and, but we don't want to lead them either. You know, this isn't leading the witness. It's definitely making sure that we are making those right decisions. It's a process. It's a long process. It took a lot longer than I would have liked. But, uh, you know, the end product speaks for itself. I, we just got into this exclusive accelerator with Flagstar Bank. They're the sixth largest lender in the U.S. Uh, we just won the... U.S. Mass Challenge. We won Alibaba's Global Pitch. I mean, we're doing some great, having a lot of really great wins and a great end to the year uh, for 2020. So I, I think that everything's just coming together. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I, all that work, like you said, it takes time. But when you get the results from that, then it's even more gratifying. To be like, it was worth it to go through all of that to get to this point. And with that accelerator as well, with Flagstar's Mortgage Tech Accelerator, I mean, how has that experience been? And Timmy, are you like applying to get into that? I, we literally just started that at the time of this meeting. It was only just announced, I think, either yesterday or the day before. 
And we've actually, so it was just announced, but we've been working with them for the last few weeks already before that was announced. And they've been outstanding. Uh, it was originally going to be through uh, FinTech Bay Consortium. Unfortunately, with COVID, uh, they had to exit from the accelerator, uh, which actually has worked in our favor. Now it, it's the Wild West. We're literally able to email directly the executives, the C-suite members. We're treated like, you know, one of their team. We need access to this. Great. Let's look at that. Let's get you that. Uh, we need access to that. I mean, we're just requesting things and they're being wonderful about getting them. And we have meetings and really feel like we're part of their company and yeah. we feel like they're part of ours. And we've even got a Slack channel that uh, originally they were not on Slack and it was painful. And already in the last few weeks, we've got them on Slack. We've got them on Zoom instead of you know some of the other tools that they're using. So we're also upgrading them a little bit too and bringing them into the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, and there's exactly. where I say, oh, where was this all my life? You know, I, I, Google Drive. Wow, this is, I, oh, I, could t I could do stuff with you real time. Like, don't get me wrong. They're not, you know, they're not that stuck in the, in yeah. the stone age. They know about a lot of these tools, but some of them are, you know, forced to use the banking tools. I mean, it, it, it's a bank at the end yeah. of the day. And banks take a long time to adopt new technologies and uh, much of the stuff that they use are not the latest and greatest because it doesn't meet all of the you know, really extensive certifications <laughs> and security right. requirements. I mean, you at the end of the day as a consumer, you want your data and information protected and that is their first priority, which I really respect and understand too. That we've had yeah. to work with and what they use too. Yeah, which makes total sense. I mean, that's why they have some of these legacy systems in place. But with, you know, as technology advances, you have to consider what the new tools that are available and what may be able to help you as you move forward, especially when your competition adopts it and then you don't and you're like, wait a minute, we're getting left behind. Um, that's one of the things I've seen, at least with other companies that I've, I've talked to that are in industries slower moving industries where they're getting disrupted in many different ways and they're being kind of forced to figure it out, uh, which is kind of how it always happens. And and one thing I'm curious about too, just taking a step back too, with, with customer acquisition side of things, how are you even acquiring customers for RealKey in the past number of years? How have you gone about that? I mean, we've been pretty fortunate. Uh, a lot of it has been through a three-pronged approach specifically. That's digital, social media, PR content marketing, uh, and then of course, uh, events as well. Events have been replaced with uh, you know, Zoom meetings and uh, using other tools like Hopin.to. Uh, so quite a bit more efficient. I don't have to fly out anywhere, have coffees that I really didn't want to have, you know, my third, fourth coffee of the day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stay in a hotel room that's, you know, really cheap because, you know, obviously we're trying to save money as an early stage startup. Yeah, I, I, I definitely love that I can be at home with my wife, uh, you know, and have a great meal with her and, uh yeah, still, still meet with all the people I need to. It's also great because I've been in meetings and the person I'm on the meeting with says, look, I'd really like to bring this person in. Give me one second. They just send a message and the person jumps in. It's like, where are you located? Oh yeah, I'm on the other side of the US. <laughs> and, and we're both in the same room together. This is outstanding. Please, after COVID, let's not go back to handshaking and you yeah. know, meeting over coffee. I, I love meal coffees. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the human aspect approach to that. I get it. But 
I mean, the only reason to do it would really be, you know, to add rewards points to your credit card and, <laughs> you know, get to travel to different places on the company right. dollar. And I guess for me, I'm just not all about that stuff. I'm more about the efficiency and let's get stuff done. We're, we're on a mission and a vision here that's really at the end of the day should be priority one. Yeah, it is a much different environment. People are realizing it's it's incredibly very much so possible to do and operate when you have to. And you're seeing how companies are adapting. Even talking to a number of investors, they're adapting too. They thought that they could never invest in companies without meeting in person. And now they're doing Zoom meetings and being like, wait a minute, it's different, but we can write it's the It's not checks, substantially so. different. Yeah, exactly. We're getting what we need done. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm literally sitting in San Francisco and my view out my window uh, is of all the financial district. And I'm just staring up at you know the giant Salesforce tower and all these other buildings. I've got Instagram, Facebook. I got DocuSign right across the street. And I was like, those are all empty right now. <laughs> and <laughs> after a vaccine, it, it, our, those are really expensive office buildings. And yeah nobody's been in them are they really gonna you know want to continue paying those rents or do you want to continue paying? i'm getting kind of off topic here but yeah it's very very interesting how things have changed and how much they will stay in 2020 uh mode yeah and even though it's off, off topic totally fine with that because it is a something that a lot of companies are grappling with and trying to figure out what that mix is going to be, right? Like, do you go completely remote? Do you have a mixture where you have an office for some people who are in the location where your company is and just have a smaller space for if they want in-person meetings? Like, who knows how it's going to change? It's going to be fascinating to watch, though, and see what what strategy companies take to to go about that and what their workforce wants as well. Absolutely. I think that that was one of our advantages when COVID hit. We've always had a remote culture. It's allowed us to go through and to find the right people, no matter where their geography is. Uh, we've saved a lot of money in doing that. Now, definitely, if everybody was in San Francisco, it would cost us quite a bit more. Yeah. Then you look at the office expenses and everything that comes with that, laptops, phones, security, insurance. And I think that having that remote culture on day one definitely saved us a substantial amount of money, time, and also when COVID hit, you know, the only difference was maybe we had a few more kids in the background <laughs> meetings, uh, yeah. definitely. Uh, but uh, other than that, it really hasn't affected us. And I think that that's something we're very fortunate uh, to have been mindful of that. We definitely had a lot of advisors and investors say, hey, as, you know, as soon as you can, you really should try to grow your team in the office. I'm like, thank goodness I didn't listen to you at all. <laughs> and I went with my gut on this one and my gut seemed to be right. And now they're saying, oh, you're so smart. We're so proud of you. I'm like, okay. Yeah. You, yeah. Totally, it, you change your tune substantially. Yeah. Well, there is, you know, this talent arbitrage of sorts. When you look at the whole world versus just one location, then you really start to think about what could be possible from a talent perspective for startups and, you know, really who can do the job that you need. And, and it also, because we're still so, you know, relatively short and new into this pandemic, you know, how does that go longer term and people start working remote for a year, year and a half, two years? Does it change people's perspectives of it? Or does it, you know, positive or negative? I don't know. And uh, like I said, just to see how that's going to progress and how companies go about that is going to be interesting. And then what opportunities will be there within within the real estate and everything else is a whole other conversation. But uh, going back to RealKey as well. So take me through the the business model behind this in terms of uh, RealKey and maybe how that's evolved from the beginning, unless it's been the same since. 
Uh, it's been generally the same. We did a lot of research before going through and choosing our business model, which is a monthly subscription. Uh, we made sure that the pricing was checked against what currently exists and also the value that we're providing. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, so we charge, I'm being transparent, we charge $99 per month per user. A user for us is a loan officer, the person who takes your loan application processor, usually the person who captures all the documentation, packages it to underwriting. If underwriting is internal, we do charge for them. If they're external, meaning they're brokering it out, we obviously don't charge those people. And then, of course, manager. Um, we do have annual subscriptions where we give discounts for those. Um, and what we found is that uh, when we were talking about the $99, we, we again, we did our user research and we never told anybody when we were showing them what we had built how much we were charging for. Instead, we'd ask them, you know, how much would you pay for this? Uh, you know, great. How, uh, what would you prefer to pay? Would you prefer to do monthly per transaction? Um, you know, would you like to have discounts for this and that? And interesting enough, everybody told us they would be willing to pay us $300 per transaction because we were affecting so many different parties and saving them so much time per transaction. We're like, great, we only charge 99 bucks per month for this, but good to know we can charge you more in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, th I thought that was, uh, it was great to take that approach. I think that every company should do that before setting their price point. A lot of companies, especially early stage, uh, obviously you got to put numbers on your investor deck. And uh, I think that you should hold off doing that. Actually talk to users, go through what you've built, make sure to ask them those questions. It has an effect on a lot of things. Well, and to that point then, Christopher, diving a little bit deeper on that, how how has that, ha, have you tested more of it? Have you tried different price points? Have you, I mean, has it changed at all? Because at pricing, and from talking to a lot of people about pricing, going value-based pricing, especially when you look at something like a, a SaaS product of sorts, um, testing and figuring out can be so difficult. And a lot of times people are undercharging to your point of, you mentioned the users said a lot more. How do you think about that in terms of your pricing then? Yeah, I think that as far as our pricing, so we are also uh, looking at new features that we'll be adding over the next six to 12 months that add additional value. And we are looking at, at taking it past just documentation, collection, review, and communication, and starting to really get into helping to qualify the loans uh, and, uh, and doing a lot more integrations. And uh, at that point, we did have conversations with users saying, well, what about that? How should we go through and do that? Should we charge... Uh, as you do a, as you do a submission, uh, should we charge at your closing? Uh, and we came to those conclusions. Well, what if the consumer doesn't go with us? You know, then I just paid for you know something that I'm not going to get any value on. Uh, or if they can't qualify, then we got also you know if it's at closing, it gets very complex. And for us, we'd have to then chase people down. Did you guys close? Did you guys close? You know, uh, <laughs> or, or we don't want to become a collection company. And so what our users ended up coming up with. Uh, on their own was saying, well, I think that in the future for your, when you do start to charge per transaction, uh, ideally you would, since you're qualifying, if the loan is doable according to your system, uh, then at that point, I think it's okay to charge us because at the end of the day, if the consumer doesn't go with us, it's either they didn't like us, which you can't control, or they didn't like our rates and fees, which again, you can't control. Uh, and at that point, uh, as long as it's a uh, you know, fairly reasonable price point, uh, then no problem. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to reveal that yet because yeah, uh, yeah. We're, we're still testing that out. But um, I think we've got a pretty darn good idea uh, of what we're going to do. And I think that uh, as you're adding features that have impact, people are willing to pay for them. I mean, as long as it, it, you're not 
adding a cost without actually having impact on the end users' lives. Um, I think all is good at that point. Yeah. Again, back to the idea of value-based pricing and really providing more value for different things you offer and these different features. You can you can you can charge for that if you're really making an impact on that side of things. And and today in the business, you know, being about five years in or so with this, how is your time mostly spent in the business, Christopher? Uh, it definitely has evolved and changed. I'm in a lot more meetings these days. Yeah. Um, it, I call them sometimes, uh, it, 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 don't quote me on this, but I call them hell days. Essentially, <laughs> it, it's uh, four to five hours straight without any break in between. So don't drink coffee, don't eat any food. Um, and yeah, I, I've had quite a bit of those. And so what ends up happening is obviously you still have emails, you still have work that needs to actually get done. And a lot of that ends up getting pushed. Uh, I'm a more of a night person. So I'll be up until, you know, 1, 2, 3 a.m. at night, just making sure that I've finished all my work and I'm not a bottleneck for anybody and that progress can continue. Yeah. Other people like to do it first thing in the morning. But the thing is that it definitely in the middle of the day when you've got meetings or even when you're not meetings and you're getting a lot of phone calls or a lot of Slack messages, uh, it's difficult to get that stuff done otherwise. Yeah, everyone has their own schedule. It's like figuring out whatever whatever works for you uh, on that, whether it be early or late. But it is that point of from talking again, different entrepreneur. Like you never want to be the bottleneck because then you're just kind of restraining progress in your business. And so figuring out a way to make sure those things move forward for for your employees. I think I take a lot. I think I take a lot of pride in not having a full voicemail and having my emails be responded to. Uh, I do notice that other executives, unfortunately, don't do that. Uh, and again, this kind of this is from the mortgage days. I, I've always been able to, uh, you know, multitask, work late nights, and put in the extra time and effort to get those things done. And that's translated over to this. And it's really the other aspect of it is, uh, again, leading from the trenches and being a great example for the rest of your team. Um, I think that's important. With that as well, Christopher, how do you recharge outside of work? Uh, recharging, I so we're in the middle of COVID. Uh, a lot of stuff I used to do, um, so I used to help teach uh, Taekwondo. Uh, I have a fourth degree that uh, we got from Korea, um, and I used to do that. That was always a lot of fun, you know, go to those classes, have, you know, a uh, teenager, 20-year-old kick the crap out of me, yeah. <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> Um, and you know, come back with a few bruises, sweaty. That's definitely helpful. I can't do that much anymore. Uh, so I also, my other side hobby is rare beer collecting. I have one of the largest rare beer collections in the U S and, uh, you know, although the majority of that seller is, uh, you know, stouts, barley wines, lambics, uh, actually really, there's a few particular breweries I enjoy that make some good uh, double dry hopped hazy double IPAs. Um, and that's been my vice is uh, at the end of the day, I've got a few friends locally. We meet outside. Uh, we spread out about 10 feet from each other, more than six feet, uh, <laughs> use sanitizer and everything. And then we each bring, a, you know, uh, two or three cans or a bottle of something nice that we traded for, which I know sounds weird. But yeah, that's mm. been how I, that's been how I relax is, over uh, some rare beers with the buddies. 
Hey, not a bad way to go, man. <laughs> and and one last question I'm just curious about is how do you, in terms of investing in yourself, uh, how do you go about that? How do you make sure you're you know, a better founder, a better leader uh, of your team as well? I always ask for feedback. We do have a roundtable approach. In fact, we recently just had a new employee start uh, and it, she's been wonderful. I mean, everybody's very happy with her. And she was, uh, you know, uh, making sure she didn't step on toes and she was, you know, I making sure to apologize for taking people's time here and there. She was always very apologetic. And like, it's a lot of that was that corporate structure environment that she was in. And we're like, no, we're round table here. We're all equals. Uh, and I'll, obviously if there's any feedback you want to give to me, give it to me, give it to other people. We're all very logic based. So we're not going to take it emotionally or the wrong way, as long as it's presented properly. And that's how we continue to improve. In addition to that, I'm always on every possible publication. I'm looking at all of the potential competitors, all the companies in the space, and I'm looking at it as the end user too and making sure that I know what's out there. I know what's, what's going on in our industry and that I can have uh, be a source of information and guidance for the rest of the company, the team. And when investors have questions, um, you know, they want to know that I've got a pretty good control of that. So I think it's investing in those kind of things. Um, that's important. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's only so much time in the day to do things, but uh, I think that keeping active there uh, is beneficial for everyone. Absolutely. And Christopher, where can people go to learn more about RealKey and connect with you as well if they would like to? Yeah, our website, realkey.com for anybody in the mortgage ecosystem. Uh, every home buyer listening uh, <laughs> who has... I guarantee you bought a refinance this year. So let's be honest. Uh, every listener who owns a home can make a simple intro to me and our team. Hey, lender, Christopher at realkey.com. This is going to make your job suck a little less and you know, help you provide a better experience. I'll let you both take it from here. Something as simple as that. Uh, anybody else who's interested from potential investment standpoint on the current tranche, uh, we've got a little bit left in the round. It's almost gone. But uh, reach out on LinkedIn and please know contract developers. I get way too many of those calls and <laughs> we're, we're pretty happy with our team. I do appreciate it. But um, I think that, that that would about sum it up for me on how to get a hold of us and learn more. Perfect. Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.